You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. 22 minutes to 3 o'clock. It is that time of the week when we get to hang out with the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, and take all of your interesting science-related questions. Give us a call, 011-883-0702. You can find us on Twitter at M, and you can also find us on WhatsApp by sending a voice note or a message, 072-702-1702. Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing? I really like that, the concept of hanging out. I've never had that happen before. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hanging out. Let's hang. Yes, we, You're right. we are just hanging. I am good and I have a question for you, but I want us to go to the lines first. And if we have time, we'll come through to my question. Let's go to Mapula in Pretoria. Mapula, hi. Hi, Mm, Go ahead. Dr. Chris is listening. Hello, doctor. Uh, my son... I think he was born with allergies because since he was young, he has a difficulty of breathing. So, and then we discovered when he was seven that there was allergies. He has allergy of wheat, soya, milk, nuts. So I want to know, will the allergy ever go away? Mm. What is allergy, first of all? Well, allergy is where your immune system regards something as hostile, which is in fact completely innocuous and harmless. Normally, the body has a system called tolerance, where as we grow up and encounter things that are harmless, we persuade our immune system to ignore them, and we regard things that are potentially dangerous for us, we tell our immune system to respond to them. Sometimes the wires get crossed, and the immune system regards something that's not going to do you any harm as something that warrants a vigorous response, and that's an allergy. And they come in different shapes and sizes to different things, but broadly, the process that's going on is the same, which is you have made an immune response to something that you shouldn't be responding to. Now, the downside of that is because the immune system learns, the more you encounter that thing up to a point, often the worse the allergy can become. Also, because the immune system is there to try to defend you for life, often these things, once you've got them, are entrenched and they're going to be there indefinitely. But you can do things to control them. The obvious thing to do is to not be exposed to the thing that you're allergic to because that can help to avoid A, sensitizing you further and B, obviously the unpleasant symptoms. The other thing you can do if you have mild allergies like hay fever or what we call oral allergy syndrome, there are some things in foods which people just react to and they have mild symptoms. You can take antihistamines. Antihistamines block the chemical histamine which is released as part of the allergy response and it's what causes you to have the reaction it causes the swelling the itching the tenderness the unpleasantness swollen eyes and so on and if you block that before it gets released then even if you do respond to the thing you encounter the thing you're allergic to the symptoms aren't so intense so that's another possibility and then there's another thing which is it is possible to desensitize some people And this is particularly useful with life-threatening allergies against things like peanuts, stuff that you find so commonly in food, out in the environment, that the chances of running into it are high, and the chances, therefore, of having a serious problem with your health are high. And and a friend of mine at Adam Brooks Hospital called Pam Ewan is actually curing people of peanut allergy. And the way she does this is that they expose people who have life-threatening peanut allergy to tiny amounts of, of peanut flour, just tiny, almost impossible to see amounts to start with, and they slowly build it up and present it onto the mouth in this way, 
there's something special that happens with the immune system, which is it, pers it persuades the immune system to become tolerant of the thing that it previously reacted to. And they build up and build up so that now she prescribes, as a consultant, her patients a handful of peanuts every day. And this keeps their allergy at bay by keeping the immune system reminded of the very thing that it was reacting inappropriately to. Now, that can work for some food problems, but not all of them. And there are some allergies, for instance, celiac disease, where people react to one of the components in wheat, which is the uh, gluten in the cereal. This you just have to manage by lifelong avoidance because it's impossible to deprogram that out of the immune system. So it really depends on what the allergy is, how severe the allergy is, and what you're reacting to as to whether or not the best way to manage it is avoidance, medical management or possibly that desensitization process I talked about. Thank you so, so much for that question, Mabula. All the best there with your son. Allergies are very, very tricky, but I hope that he can grow to just have a life where it is managed well. Let's go to Peter in Sanson. Hi, Peter. Hi, hi. Uh, Chris, I'm sure you've heard this one a thousand times. Who built the pyramid? Who is the what? Who built the pyramids? Oh, who built the pyramids? I'm sorry, the line wasn't great. Well, the answer is the ancient Egyptians built the pyramids, and we've got very good documentation on this because actually they wrote down a lot of stuff, and people can now decode the hieroglyphs, the language that was the, the pictograms that they used to document what they were doing and who was doing it and why they were doing it. And the pyramids, I mean, back in that sort of time 5,000 years ago, building big stuff was a way to demonstrate to other civilizations a number of things. One, your engineering prowess, your technology, your ability to master architecture. It was a huge, great statement. And if you could move literally thousands of tons of rock, you had a massive number of people at your beck and call to do it. And so it was a good way of demonstrating to other people your power in human and economic terms as well. So we know who did this. The ancient Egyptians did this. We don't know exactly why it occurred to them that it would be a good idea to build a pyramid. But we know that they didn't just suddenly build a pyramid and then build them all the same. You can look at the way the pyramids were constructed and, and see how they learned from the process, how they realized what worked and what didn't work and how they modified their designs and, and how they became more ambitious in some cases with time. And also how they became more secretive because they obviously realized they, they wanted in, in order to uh, safeguard their loved ones. Uh, route into the afterlife. They, they wanted a, a way of safeguarding their treasures and so on, so they made these things very hard to get into. But they also realized people were going to be after what they were putting in there. So they learned a lot about subterfuge and, and about clever engineering in order to make these things very hard to access. And we're still unlocking those secrets to this day, but we certainly know who built it, and that was the ancient Egyptian civilization about 5,000 years ago. Thank you so much to you, Peter, in Sant, and let's go to Debojo in Springs. Hi, Debojo. I asked really little. Mm, good, thanks. And you? I'm good. I'm good, man. Um, I'm pretty sure maybe you've covered this question, but let me just go ahead and shoot it. Um, I have a question for doctor today. I've got this. Um, I think it's allergies. Every time when, after taking a shower, a bath, my skin gets itches like nobody's business. It gets itches to a point. I can't even bear the pain. It's really painful. So I'm, I would like to know what causes this because... I've tried using different soaps, um, different lotions and all that, but it, the, 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 the pain doesn't go away. Um, especially in wintertime, it, it, it's 10 times worse than in the summer. What causes um, mm. this uh, pain?
Can I ask Debuho, um, how hot do you take your bath? Is it like medium temperature or quite hot? Well, I've tried all. Um, I've tried taking lukewarm um, showers, mm. but still, the pain is there. Sometimes mm. I'll go with hot, but still the pain. So I, I, even with cold water, I, I don't even understand what seems to be the problem. Mm. All right. Uh, Chris? Hi, Debuho. You're right. We did talk about this recently, and we talked about it in the context of a condition called aquagenic urticaria, because there is, believe it or not, one manifestation of allergy, which is being allergic to water. Hence, aqua and genic means make. Urticaria gives you an itchy reaction. So there is a very small number of people. It's very rare, but there are people in the population who, when they come into contact with water, it provokes this reaction in their skin. They release histamine, that same stuff we were talking about earlier, and it makes itchy, painful, swollen skin. But the first thing to do whenever you have any kind of thing like this where you have an obvious, consistent pattern is to ask, well, what am I doing when this happens? And is there anything that I can change in order to stop it happening? And you do a sort of detective thing, a bit like the Wagatha Christie case that we've all been hearing about with footballers' wives. You've got to investigate and try and find out what the cause of your problem is. And very often with skin reactions, it can be thermal, it can be temperature, which is which is why Lebo is quite right to ask you what was the temperature of the mm. bath, because extreme heat or extreme cold in some people can provoke these sorts of reactions. Some people do have changes in their nervous system that make that happen. But very often it's what we put on our skin when we're in the bath or in the shower. There are some lotions, some shampoos, some soaps that are intensely irritant, and they can do this. So that's one thing to to, to remove from the equation, and it sounds like you've already done that. If, having changed those things, the only thing left is just whether or not you put water on your skin, then it does look like you might be one of these people that, that does sometimes react to water, warm water, cold water, that, that give you this reaction. And I wouldn't advise you not to go and wash, but maybe seeing with, if you can experiment with different temperatures of water or exposing different amounts of the body. Say, wash hands and see if that gives you the reaction. Wash your arms and see if that still gives you a reaction. Were... If you can slowly get to the bottom of what's going on, then mm. you might be able to take that to an allergy specialist who can give you some advice as to the best way to proceed. Debucho, have you ever tried, um, and this is not scientific at all, of course I'm not an expert, but you, have you ever tried just an aqueous cream wash to see, because obviously some people react to very different things in soaps, um, even if you try the most basic, basic one, maybe it's something still there. Have you tried just an aqueous cream wash? No, I haven't tried it before, but normally what I do, um, I just use that um, aqua cream test to, you know, after like uh, taking a shower or bath, I just use it to, to cover my body. But I haven't used it just to wash with it. Um, maybe I should just give it a try and see what can happen. Probably it can assist me because honestly, it's this thing, it's been happening mm. throughout my entire life. I, every day. When I have to bath, I think about the pain after bath and like, oh, mm. it's really painful. I can't. Have you ever just tried bathing with nothing? As in, if you're doing the test to see if it's water and nothing else, have you ever tried to just get in a bath and get out? You know what I normally do um, mm-hmm. during the week? Um, some certain days I just bath without any soap or anything mm. um, just to see if it's going to help. But it, the pain still gets there, even just, mm. you know, bathing with water just like that mm. and then some other days like in a week i separate maybe two days i just bath with bath with clean water mm. without any soap and then other days i just mix 
because um, sometimes it will get worse and sometimes it will get less when I use uh, probably a certain soap um, mm. and then I'll be like, okay, maybe it works, but I will use that soap for the next day, two, two, uh, two, four days and instead... Back to square one. Yeah, Deboho, I think I think the doctor's advice of doing process of elimination and doing your own investigation so that when you get an appointment with an allergy specialist, you can present with some of your findings. Thank you for that call. Let's go to Timothy in Johannesburg South. Hi, Timothy. Hi, good afternoon to you. Mm. Yes, go ahead. Doctor, something that's been not bothering me, but... Uh, being so interested in space and space exploration and all. Since childhood, I've been looking up at the sky, especially in winter in this country. And then you can see the Milky Way so clear. Now, I do know that we are, the planet Earth and our, our, our solar system is situated in one arm of the Milky Way. I want to know, why can't we see on the back side, the other arms of the moon. Because when we're looking up in the sky, the Milky Way, we're looking at an arm of the Milky Way. Isn't that so? Hi, Timothy. The Milky Way is a flat disk. It's a spiral galaxy. You're quite right. It's got arms that stick out, but it's like a flat disk with these arms sticking out, rather like a circular saw blade. And we're in one of those arms. And because it's a flat disk, when you look up in the sky, you see a strip of stars across the night sky and that is you looking across the milky way at the other stars in our galaxy and it's about a hundred thousand light years across our milky way galaxy and there's something like 200 billion stars out there that make up our galaxy so you're looking edge on to that disc and that's what the strip across the sky is so you are seeing across the galaxy you're seeing a cross section and you're seeing the stars that are in that disc that we can see. Some of them are going to be a long way away and, and quite dim. Some are much brighter and they're closer as well, which make them easier to see. But that is what that strip is. It's the Milky Way seen from the side on. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Timothy, for that one. Let's go to Aldridge in Riddipoids. Hi, Aldridge. Hi, good afternoon. Mm. Uh, I'm a, a seven-year-old male and I have been suffering for the last year with the uh, cold feet. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not sure what happened know. there. Did you were you able to hear that uh, from your side, doctor? Well, from you, you you've got cold feet, and you don't say whether you've got cold feet about uh, getting married or about. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I was just going to say you took the words right out of my mouth, and I nearly put my foot in it. Boom. No, no, no I don't. Um, is is this a new thing? Because the key thing is with anything medical, anything to do with the human body, you must always ask, first question is, is this a new thing? Has something changed? If this is something that's always happened, then that's just you. If it's something that has started to happen that didn't before, then something must have changed to make that start to happen. So is this a new thing or is this something you've always had? This is absolutely a new thing. Um, like I said, it just started about a year ago, and I've tried neurobian tablets, I've tried so many, but it looks like it's a signal that's coming from my brain uh, to my feet, and when I touch it, it's actually warm, but my, my right. brain tells me that my feet is ice cold. Mm. 
Yeah, okay. Well, that does sound interesting. The fact that your feet are not cold and they're warm to the touch and they're well perfused, they're not a blue colour. Are they a nice red, a nice healthy pinky red colour? And if you squeeze your toenails, do they do they go white and then immediately go back to pink again when the blood flows back in? Correct. Mm. Yeah. So, well, that's reassuring that, that there's nothing wrong in terms of the blood supply, because I thought, first of all, perhaps there might be something going, going on with the blood vessels, because one of the things that happens as we get older, blood supply, blood vessels stiffen up and blood supply becomes less good. And therefore, it, it can rob our extremities of adequate what we call perfusion. There's, there's less good blood flow through the peripheries. And it does mean that hands and feet in older people tend to get colder. But if you're well perfused and those distal extremities are nice and warm that rules it out and as you say it it could be a neurological thing now what you don't say is if you've got something like diabetes or some other nervous disorder because one of the things characteristic with things like diabetes is that people get what we call a glove and stocking distribution neuropathy and this can mean that at the longest extremes of nerves in our body the, the longest nerves going to the ends of your arms and the bottoms of your feet bottom you know bottom of your legs those nerves can stop working in people with conditions including diabetes there's a range of other conditions and it can lead to misleading sensations coming from that bit of the body and that that is a, a neuropathy so it might be worth getting that checked out there's also a bizarre uh, poisoning that some people get it's called cigatera poisoning from uh, fish that you can eat now i'm not saying you've been eating loads of fish but in australia um when i was there i met some people who this had happened to and you get certain fish that eat certain types of algae and the algae make this and this toxin when it gets into the human body one of the things it can do is to affect the way that the nervous system signals temperature and you get temperature inversion in other words you think it's hot and your body says it's cold uh, that cool. sounds a bit extreme for you but it's not impossible that that could be something like that has happened but i would i would start with the simple things and just make sure that, that there's nothing actually physically wrong with your feet but then also do, do go and get checked out to make sure there's not some other cause of neuropathy going on that could be causing this thank you so much aldridge uh, very quickly aaron you've got a question about dreams yes yes um yeah doctor yeah there are a few questions um how do dreams formulate you know, how do they happen and another point is that as I'm right. all, all along, I thought dreams are a reflection of what has happened during the day or what you saw or what you were talking about. And the other part is dreams that frighten you, you know, that you're almost in the brink of death and then you wake up, you know, then that's how you survive. So what happens there, you know? Oh, Aaron, that's a good one because many people dream of like just about to fall over an edge or a cliff and then they wake up before then. Doctor? Well, when we go to sleep, we don't just switch our brain off. Our brain goes through various patterns of high and low activity throughout the night. And these are called REM and non-REM phases of sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement. And that is when you are dreaming. And you can spot this if you watch someone asleep. They'll go through this sudden pattern where their breathing will quicken, their eyes will be flicking around under their eyelids, and they'll show more animation and movement. And if you wake them up when that's happening, they generally, by and large, say, I was just dreaming about something. So we know the brain goes through these phases when it's tending to dream, which is coinciding with this REM sleep. We know this is not confined just to humans. Other animals do this as well. We don't know why animal and our own brains need to sleep and probably need to dream if you stop yourself dreaming 
you don't get restful sleep. People are not psychologically refreshed when they wake up if they've had non, if they haven't had natural sleep in this way. But when we do dream, what's going on is that the parts of the brain that normally do their various jobs that they do during the day, they just spontaneously burst into action and start generating experiences which they present to your consciousness. We don't know exactly why this is happening. Is it that the brain is clearing out the rubbish that it doesn't need? Is it organizing your thoughts and storing memories? Is this part of the memory consolidation process? We know when we sleep, we do tend to make memories that we've picked up during the day stronger. We also clear out things that are distractions that we don't want to remember. So is that what's going on? Um, in terms of why we have those sudden waking and and um, and falling off a cliff type experiences, it, we're not sure whether or not you wake up dramatically and then invent some kind of story to explain why you suddenly woke up or whether you were getting very excited and that's what made you wake up. It's probably the latter, that you your dream is getting very exciting and it gives you such an arousing stimulus that you're suddenly woken up. But we, we just don't know because it's very hard to probe what dreaming means because when we're asleep, we're doing it and you can't ask people to comment on it. You have to wake them up and then they're waking up and they're not asleep anymore. So they can't really faithfully account what's going on. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, Doctor, because we've run out of time, but we're back with you on Monday. Dr. Chris Smith for The Naked Scientist.